Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew 24, we saw a lot of prophecy, a lot of proofs that the Bible is thousands of years ago have predicted things that are coming true in our lifetime. It's the only holy book on the planet that does that because it's inspired, of course, by God, not by man. Uh, and today we're going to look at really Jesus, one of his last parabolic teachings prior to the crucifixion. So in essence, the chapter 24 was, this is going to happen. These things are going to take place. I'm going to come back. I'm going to return. I'm not going to leave you orphans. And Matthew 25 basically is, but this is what I want you to do until then. So we see more application, more things that we can apply to our lives, less fact-laden and more of a simple lesson. So we're going to jump in in verse 1. Jesus says, then... Remember, there was no chapter delineations back then. This is one continual teaching that Jesus has with his disciples. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and for you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. So in context, again, we left off with chapter 24, where Jesus exhorted his believers to be watchful. Now, what does watchful mean? Well, we know that for those of you who are not terribly familiar with Christianity and you see, unfortunately, just the, 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 the problems with it or stuff that's pseudo-Christianity, not real, we know that for probably thousands of years, apparently, I look back at um, those who have set dates for the end of the world and it goes back to you know, the first few centuries. Uh, and Paul addresses that in his letters. So what does watchful mean? Now, we predict the end of the world, and the night before we staring up at the sky and you know, sell all our possessions. No, that's cultish. Jesus never called his believers to do that. Okay? But what he's asking us to do, what he's telling us to do, is to be spiritually vigilant, to be paying attention, to be vigilant, to be awake, not to be spiritually drunk, to know what's going on, to do or to be as, as a Christian more than just do and go through the motions. He wants us to, it to permeate our being, our faith, uh, so that when he comes back, we'll be found faithful. Now, to understand this, we have to understand the wedding customs of the day in the Hebrew culture. So in other words, I'm going to make a parallel between what actually happened in the first century when, uh, in, in the Hebrew customs when somebody would get married, and then I'm going to parallel how the Lord feels about us. Okay, so number one, what the bridegroom does is he goes to the bride's house and he claims her. Maybe talks to the parents, I want to marry this woman, I love her. And we really can see that at the cross. When Jesus died for our sins, it didn't matter what you did before you came to the Lord. It doesn't matter what your sins, what your crimes were. Jesus went to the cross and he died for all of our sins. So he claimed us at the cross. Now in the Hebrew custom, what would happen is the bridegroom would also he wouldn't take the bride at that point in time. He would leave and go to his house. This is amazing. And it would be like a nesting phase. He would rearrange the home. He would set it up to receive his bride. He would set up the party, the wedding party. And then when she comes back to his house, from that point on, she would be with him. 
Now, we know that in John 14, I just read this downstairs in the children's ministry for the d- devotion. He says, don't, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. You know, I go away. I go to my father's house. There are many mansions. And I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, believers. I didn't come to leave you as orphans. So you see the parallel there. And then the last step is that he comes back to the bride's house. He comes back for her at a time that she's not expecting. Could be in the middle of the night, could be two in the morning, three in the morning. And she has to be prepared. You know, the dress has to be ready. She has to be ready to to leave uh, her belongings, either bring what she needs to bring and ready to go because as soon as her love comes to, to, you know, bring her, first to the wedding party and then to the uh, actual life living with this man, uh, she's got to be ready. Right? So this kind of shows us, and we talked about this before, about the Lord coming at a time where we won't expect. Right? In chapter 24, the harpazo, or the rapture. It's pretty neat, isn't it? So the parallels here are striking. Not only that, the wedding party, according to Revelation, the Lord comes for his people, and then there's a great feast in heaven, right? the wedding feast of the Lamb, and then he comes back in his second coming down to the earth. So you see these incredible parallels between this wedding custom and what, how Christ uh, behaves towards us. Now, a few things we need to look at here is that and I said this in prayer today, um, they're virgins. They are pure in the scripture. When Jesus died for our sins, that's how he sees us. Sometimes we don't see ourselves that way. Sometimes we put ourselves down. Sometimes we don't forgive ourselves for things that we've done. But the Lord's like, I don't even remember that anymore. Why are you still hanging on to that? So he sees us as pure because of what he did on the cross, his finished work on the cross. Now, the other thing you see is that there's a bridegroom and there's 10 of them. But understand, the Bible is clearly against and forbids polygamy. Don't take everything out of a parallel and try to make a truth out of it. What you see here is with the five wise and the five foolish is really a a picture, a macrocosmic picture of the church, whether the church here or in, in Asia or in Africa or in Australia, collectively, the professing church. In the professing church, there are those that are truly believers and there are those that aren't believers. They're either make believers or they haven't, they haven't trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior yet. And we'll look at this. Now, look at the symbolism. Number one, in their lamps, there was a light. And the light had to do with the wick being put in the oil, and it would, the oil was the fuel. But you know that if you maybe go to your workplace or your relatives or uh, your school, wherever you're at, after a while, if you've really submitted to the Lord and you start to grow, some will look at you while there's layoffs, while there's trouble with the boss, you seem to be even keel throughout the whole situation. And somebody may say to you, there's something different about you. That's the light. Jesus said, we are called to be the light of the world. Now, he is the light, but he gives us the honor of reflecting in our own little way the light of Christ. Isn't that an honor? I think this will be very encouraging as we start to look at this. Number two, the oil was indicative of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 1, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? But you either have the oil or you don't have the oil. That's, that's important. Uh, as we go through 1 Samuel, which I'm loving, Uh, on Wednesday nights, you'll see the difference between two men, King Saul, who had the Spirit of God, 
But he kept trying to do it his way. He kept rebelling against the Lord. He kept uh, finding himself in willful sin. He pushed God out of his life. At one point in time, it says the spirit departed from him. But little David led a life that was uh, conducive to the Lord coming into his life and staying there. And in Psalm 51, he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit was different back then than it is today uh, in the New Testament. But you see the difference between somebody who wants God in their life and somebody who drives him out of their life. So the ten fall asleep as it's getting late and the bridegroom is tarrying. And three, at midnight, a cry is heard. The bridegroom is coming. Oh, we better get together. You know, we need to get our lamps together. We need to see what's going on. We need to find our way so we can meet our, our, our groom. But what happens is uh, you can see this cry or that the bridegroom's coming in an hour not expected is the, the harpazo, right? And what's the message there as believers? Be ready. I don't know when he's coming. It could be tonight. It could be 10 years from now. I might die first and be with him that way before he comes back. So we don't know. So we should be being instead of doing. And we'll keep coming back to that. Verse 9, there's a discussion that ensues. The uh, five wise virgins say, go buy your own oil, basically. We can't give you what we have because there's a possibility that as we're going to meet the bridegroom, both of our oil will go out. We have just enough to get where we need to get or maybe a little bit more. You guys have none. It isn't going to work out. So you're going to go buy your own oil. So the five attempted to go buy their own oil. Now, if, if oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit, then it's also a picture of a relationship with the Lord. Then those who have attempted to buy the oil are trying to get to heaven by some other means. Now, some think that through religion, you know, I, when I go to the, the gym, I have a little card and they, I pass it under the, the laser and uh, it clicks and it says that I can go and do what I want to do in the gym. But see... Some people think that religion is like a little card that when they get to heaven, they just you know, swipe it under the barcode meter and they're going to get right into heaven and it doesn't work like that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. So there's no other way except through Christ. Some will look at their lamps and see it's out of oil. They'll look in the tank of their spiritual vehicles and it's out of gas. It ain't going anywhere. Right? The second point is some... I want to read this psalm. There's only two verses, Psalm 49, 7 through 8, and then I'll kind of say what I'm trying to say here. Uh, it says, none of them can by any means, none of them, none, none of us, none of anyone, can by any means redeem his brother, no matter how hard we try. To give God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. Then he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Now, there's a contextual issue there, but the truth is that some try to redeem another. Some try to get to heaven through their wonderful husband who's a godly believer and maybe I'm not, or vice versa. The wife is a godly believer and the husband's not saved. You know, we don't get to God riding the coattails of another member of our family. And this is very important that we teach the youth, and I know Vinny does a good job downstairs, is that even the kids, you grow up in a Christian home and you're part of the Christian culture, you have to have a relationship with the Lord. You know, my son is going to be 12, and I'm impressing that upon him. He can't ride my coattails. It's got to be him and the Lord alone. So when we stand before the Lord, there's nobody else with us. Now, if Christ, if we're in Christ and, and we're accused of sins that we've committed, well, Christ is sort of like our defense attorney. We get in because we've trusted in him. So a few issues need to be pointed out there. Verse 10, 
And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. It's powerful. So the five foolish um, finally get to the place and the door's shut. The party's going on. And they try to get in and, you know, little pig, little pig, let me in, but it's not happening, you know. So he says, I don't know you. Now, if I jump down to Matthew seven twenty one, a few verses here, Jesus says, and I've covered this many times, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So even if someone can be doing the Christian thing, their heart may not be there. This is very important. And this is really a, uh, can be an uncomfortable portion of Scripture because it really is a window to our soul. What does it look like? Do I really know the Lord? Will he say, I know you? In the, in, in, you know, coming into his kingdom, we'll say, I never knew you. Very important to look at. Jesus didn't teach this to torment us. I want to read, I'm going to jump to 2 Corinthians 13.5. Again, it's one verse. And the Apostle Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Wow, that's powerful. Again, do I really know the Lord? If I examine myself and really think about my life and, and where my heart is, do I know the Lord? Is he really my savior? Or is, you know, I'm just part of the culture. Now, don't fret, because if that's you, all you have to do is change. It's a simple word, one word, one syllable, change. But probably part of, some of the hardest things that we as, as human beings with self-wills want to do is change. And that's where repent comes from. Repent, Lord, you know what? I've been playing the part of a hypocrite or I've been part of the community, but Lord, I don't know you and I want that to change. Right? Be, make yourself real to me. I, I want to uh, you know, come to you. I want to, to follow you. I want to really do it this time. 1 John 5.13 was awesome because you had 2 Corinthians to examine ourselves. Then there's a repentance issue for not knowing the Lord. And then the last stage here is 1 John 5.13, where he says, you can know that you have eternal life. I love that. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. There's assurance. I love that. You know, there are a lot of religions, even Christian religions, that teach, well, you can never know. That's called presumptuousness. You never know. That's weird. Because that's what uh, Islam believes, and that's what a lot of other religion believes. But our God gives us assurance, right? That when we've trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, it's not a question anymore. And I tell you, my desire, and some of this stuff is, is pretty, pretty tough here, but pretty powerful. But my desire is for us to all be in the same place. Anyone in the sound of my voice, hearing it on the CD, on the website, here in this building, is that we all go to the same place. And you can have that assurance. It's that simple. That we just need to not be willful about it. And then we would ask ourselves when we look at this parable, am I prepared for Christ's return? If I died today, 
in a car crash or a freak accident or a heart attack, would I be with the Lord? Does he know me? Do I know him? Right? Am I living a life that's edifying to the Lord? Right? And again, the church is filled with the ten virgins. Uh, there's a, there's a cross-section of, of, of heart issues in the church. We have to ask ourselves those questions. Verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things and to enter into the joy of your Lord. He also had, who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, I'm going to take this in blocks because it's a long parable. I want to break it down so that we can really uh, get what's being said here. But this is a wake-up call to Christian responsibility. Every believer has a responsibility towards the Lord. And we'll look at that. So, of course, the man or the Lord who goes away to do business and gives out the talents is a picture of God. God himself. Now, Webster's Dictionary, I looked this up, and I, I love it. Um, my Webster's Dictionary and Thesaurus says, basically, that our English word talent comes from the Greek word talenton in this parable. As a matter of fact, that Webster's quotes Matthew 25. You know? Every once in a while, you run across stuff like that. I'm sure in the next few versions, it'll be sanitized. But um, say it ain't so. I mean, I love it, Right? Understand what a talent is, though. A talent was a measure of weight, not necessarily like a dollar amount. So depending on what type of metal you had a talent of, could be copper, could be silver, could be gold. Uh, in the study Bible, it gives a figure of about $2 million. Now, if you adjust that to economic times back then, and you see that these guys were actually servants, they could have never earned that in a lifetime. So it's very important that we understand that this was a great amount of money that the master gives these servants. It's like saying, here, here's a pot of gold. Go do business with it. Very impressive. So the, the, the amount is really going to come into play here. A few things we see is, number one, God doesn't make junk, and he doesn't give us junk. And his gifts are priceless. We see that in James 1.17. Two, these talents are probably primarily indicative of spiritual gifts because of the immense value. And we have an understanding that these talents, when they start to make these investments and, and they make more talents, that it, it can possibly elicit a salvation response. Again, it's priceless. It's a priceless figure. This isn't just like buying a car or buying a house or buying a land. A servant in those days couldn't even spend that amount of money. It was so much to him. Three. We are given spiritual gifts. 
When we are born again, the Bible says that we start to, not only are we, get, we get spiritual gifts, but we start to realize our gifts. Some may realize, as a new believer, you might be struggling, and, and don't worry about it, just pray. I don't know what my gift is, but maybe in a year or a few months, the Lord may open your eyes. You could be an evangelist. You may have the uh, propensity to be a pastor, a preacher, a missionary, um, an administrator, an encourager, a helper. I mean, these are all equal in God's economy, and, and we're going to come back to that as well. But one can also make the, the argument for natural ability as well, which God gave us his birth. So we're doubly blessed. Even as we're born into, into sin, before we're born again, we have natural ability. Then we're also born again of the spirit, and we have spiritual gifts on top of our natural gifts. And we need to focus more on the spiritual gifts. Now, verse, verse 15, and there's so much encouragement here. This is given, these talents were given according to ability. So in other words, God never gives us more than we can accomplish. That's important. Some will come to me, maybe not knowing that much about spiritual things, and they'll be maybe fearful. Well, what if God does this? Well, what if he sends me as a missionary overseas? You know, I don't like boats and I don't like to fly. Listen, God is only going to give you according to your ability. That's the beauty of God. So when we say, Lord, use me, we don't have to be in fear. Well, use me, but don't get too crazy, you know. I'm, I'm a little scared, so use me gently, Lord. He will give us according to our own ability. He's a, he's a gentle God. So these two servants do well. They make uh, more talents. Um, and again, do you realize the honor in this? The next time you're tempted to put yourself down, the next time you're tempted to look at your situation and say, how can God use me? He can. He has a ministry for every single one of us, every person in this room. It's just a matter of us desiring that and asking the Lord to open our eyes to it. So next time you're tempted to put yourself down or somebody else holds you in a position where they're putting you down, don't believe the lie. It's nonsense. This is good stuff. Verse 21, he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This is something that we should all crave, something that I crave. You know, I'm, believe me, I'm not the best pastor. I'm not the best preacher. Um, sometimes I listen to my own messages and wonder why anybody comes back next Sunday. But the truth is, it's what God has called me to do in this snapshot of time in my life, you know? And my desire, you know, there are things in the world that we sometimes get caught up in, fleshly things, material things. But is our heart more for those material things or to hear this when we see the Lord. That's what I want to hear. That I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't the best, but I did according to my ability. And that the Lord looks at me and he smiles and says, I love you. Come over here. Give me a hug. You know, that's what I like. So, verse 23. The master said the same thing of the second servant who only made two talents as the guy who made five talents. A few points of interest. Number one, it shows that we're all as equally as important as one another. Right? The worship team was beautiful. All right, amen? I mean, they were awesome. But we all have the same worth in God's eyes. He loves us all the same, regardless of where we are in the church, serving, serving outside the church. And that's really neat. And sometimes we have to be reminded of that. Two, God wants each one of us to be successful in serving him. And three, the first and second servants have different outcomes, but their reward is the same. 
So it's not about, all about uh, a pastor, oh, that's a great, you know, that's high above, no, uh, or an evangelist or a missionary. And we have missionaries that come, and I, I just love to hear their stories. They're awesome. But everyone in here is just as important in God's economy as they are. Two made two, five made five, they both received the same reward. Verse 24. Then he said, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not gathered, uh, scattered seed. Therefore, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So we see the last servant had one talent. He digs a hole, puts it in the ground, covers it up, and he has a, an opinion of God. And we're going to break down how he sees what he did, a little self-deceived, and how God sees what he did. First of all, his point of view was, A, you're a hard man, God. You're hard. You know, it's, you're difficult. And number two, uh, you gather where you haven't scattered. I mean, based on what we read in the scripture, that's actually not true. He gave them the talents. But this is his, his way of looking at God. Three, you made me feel afraid. You're a mean God. And four, here you go. This is what you deserve. The same thing that you gave me and I put in the ground, here you go. Four points that this guy sees in his Lord. Now, these are the God blamers, and we've seen them. They don't take personal responsibility. There's always an excuse. They're always complaining. And sometimes they're in the church. And you wonder why they even call themselves Christians, because it seems that they despise God. And there are some that have the attitude, well, I just want to get to heaven. And some have the mindset that they want to get to heaven but they really don't want to deal with God and his word. They don't want to be obedient. They just kind of want to get there and, and kind of, you know, get into his house without him being there. Right? So we, we can see that this man was, was wicked. And the truth is, again, that uh, God gave them all the, these priceless figures to do business with. So what he said was really uh, accusative and it really was not, it was not accurate. Now, if we look at God's response, he says that you're not only wicked, but you're lazy. You could have at least put it in the bank. Now, if we look at this from an earthly perspective, how much, what would it take for this guy to take the talent, go over to the bank and say, here, hang on to this till my master comes back. Hopefully I can get a little interest on it. Instead, he takes the talent, he goes out into the field, probably gets a shovel, digs a hole, puts it in there, covers it back up, then marks where the spot is so that he can find it when he comes back. Seems to me like there was more effort involved in that, and maybe I'm reading too much into the story, than just giving it to the bankers, right? So it's just the way my mind works. But this guy is lazy spiritually, and it shows that he had a bad heart. He wouldn't even put forth a little bit of effort to go to the banker, and we can surmise that God would have been okay with that. But that's not what he did. Wicked and lazy. Now, the Bible says that being physically lazy is a sin. If, we're of, uh, if, we're ha if we have the ability to work, uh, the Bible says if a man won't work, if he doesn't work because he won't work, then he shouldn't eat. Pretty powerful. Now, sometimes we say, well, that's not compassionate. We always get into danger when we try to be more compassionate than God is. You see, truth, right? 
If somebody is lazy and we feed that, there's a term for that. It's called enabling. So physically lazy, now listen, if somebody's disabled, they're not lazy, they're disabled. But if somebody can work and they refuse and there are opportunities, then there's a problem with that. So there's a physical laziness and a spiritual laziness. And this is a wake-up, a really a wake-up call to Christians who get really absorbed in their lives. They, get, they come, go off and they become self-centered. They become self-absorbed. And they become spiritually lazy. It's not a good thing. Now, I'll tell you, I know at least three women who are struggling with cancer. And their frustration lies in the fact that they want to serve. They want to bless others. And you know, when you go through the treatments, there's highs and there's lows. And during the lows, they just can't physically muster up the strength, but their desire is to, serve the, is to serve God. And I'll tell you what, the longer I go and the more I see situations like that, I say to myself, I have no room to complain. I find myself complaining less over the years when I see dear brothers and sisters who are in situations and their only desire is to serve the Lord. And they're hindered from doing that. So it's a wake-up call. Some may say, well, I'm a single parent and I have to work two jobs. What can I do? Well, can you be a light in your workplace when others are maybe tempted to take extra or, or fudge on the, you know, on the proceeds that they get? And you're standing out there as a light when they're gossiping about the boss that you're just saying, hey, I'm happy to have a job. You might be a person right now in your stage of life that only has two talents, but it's okay. If you only make two talents versus the person that makes five, you get the same reward. So no matter what situation we are in, going back to the, the ten virgins, we can still be a light. We can still have those oil, that oil in our lamps. Now, to those of us, to those of us who have a lot, we have talent spiritually, and we've been really blessed materially, and we do nothing, you, you really need to check your heart on that one. The rich man and Lazarus, you know, he had this, uh, I, I, when I read the scriptures, sort of like a gated, uh, you know, estate. And the poor man, Lazarus, was out there. He had sores on him, and he would just wait for the garbage delivery so he could root through the garbage and eat the garbage. And the dogs would lick his sores. They were probably running sores, infected. And the rich man, Abraham, said, you got what you deserved in your life. You didn't consider him. And Lazarus gets what he deserves. Now, let me not say, and let me be careful not to say that this is works-based. It is not works-based. What we do and how we serve the Lord should be an overflowing of our heart to our desire to serve the Lord and the uh, power of the Holy Spirit. To do for the sake of doing. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, yeah, you did all those things. I never knew you. Depart from me. You're not getting into heaven because you didn't know me. You didn't have a relationship with me. So, I'm not saying, and, and the, the Bible is not saying, do things that are over your head and cause yourself to stress out. No. We do it over, out of the overflow of our heart because of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the equation. Verse 28. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the biblical use it or lose it principle. So from the person who had a talent, refused to do anything with it, he didn't even get to keep it. It was given to the one who had ten talents. 
I've heard it said that God is not looking for us to necessarily be successful, but he's looking for us to be faithful. And then he will give the increase, right? When we, if I sit with somebody and I share about the Lord with them, as an immature believer, I thought I had to close the deal. And I found myself on top of people. Have you ready to receive the Lord? No, you have to receive the Lord. But as maturity set in, I realized the Bible says, one plants, you know, one waters, one sows, one reaps, but God gives the increase. It's up to him. You do what God has called you to do within your ability, and he does the rest. That's the beauty of, of working with him. Now, we would ask ourselves, is, am I being responsible with what God has given me? Or am I just interested in using it for my own benefit? I will tell you this, and my wife recently and I just had a discussion. Uh, you know, when I was young, I was in my early 20s, I worked a lot. I worked three jobs. I bought my first house, and I, I would say I was successful. Whatever I wanted, you know, I fixed it up, sold it, bought another house as, as the profit I made. I was a very driven individual. And my wife reminded me, um, you were never happy. <laughs> it's true. I was not happy. The more I got, the more I thought it was going to make me feel better. And the more I was miserable, something was lacking. I was tight with my money. I was a cheapskate. <laughs> um, ask her, she'll tell you. <laughs> but the bottom line is, after Christ, I understood what generosity meant. I understood when you give that, you know, God blesses you even more. I understood sacrifice, putting time in with a person, pouring into a person. This is something I didn't understand when it was all about my self-directed life, type A personality and all. And I was an unhappy person. There was not one thing that I set my mind to in, in my little world that I didn't accomplish. You know, I remember Solomon in Ecclesiastes. I mean, he did far more than I did, but uh, he wasn't happy either if the Lord wasn't in it. So that's important to understand. Now it's different. I'll tell you that, you know, serving the Lord and, and sometimes, you know, you, your life is not your own. Um, we had our first baptism back here, you know, the baptistries back there. And uh, there was a, a wonderful family in our fellowship, four children, and the little girl, Carly, at 11 years old, uh, asked the mom, and the mom asked me, she wants to be baptized, would you do it? And I said, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, when I saw that little kid, and there was just some great testimonies during the baptism, she just was like a little lamb, you know, this little lamb that God has entrusted to our fellowship. And the fact that I had a little portion of that you know, it got me emotional, baptizing this little girl. You know, she understood it. She was excited. And other, the other testimonies as well, you can't buy something like that. You can't. And, and I'll tell you, some struggle with uh, unfulfilledness, unhappiness. And when I speak to them about giving their hearts to the Lord and serving him, they think it's an extra burden. And they think, can it be that easy? Yes, it can. But you have to jump onto the other side. You have to try it. You know what I'm saying? Um, there's just nothing like it. The most miserable person is a self-centered person who's stingy. You know, it's just my little maxim there. But the application is, what has God entrusted to me? And every one of us should ask that question when we leave this place. And am I using it to the best of my ability, according to my ability, to what God would desire? I mean, there's some that go to nursing homes and just sit with the elderly folk and read to them. And um, that is awesome. Some that go into the prison, you know, Arnie in the back who does prison ministry, uh, not a very glamorous ministry. On Friday nights, he goes in there and he 
gives me the feedback of these guys who are excited for the Lord and have changed their lives and, and want to walk that way once they get out. Not very glamorous, but it's an awesome ministry. So it's really exciting that, you know, you could be an usher, you could be, you could, you know, it just, it's just so much that it just blows me away. But verse 31, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? You know, I think that's okay. Continue. When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus, again, still continuing with this theme of responsibility. We have a responsibility, A, to our God, and B, to others. The word nations in the Greek is ethnos, or ethnicity. In the Bible, it's usually referred to the non-Jewish groups of people in the world because of the context of the scripture and what was going on in the world at that time. Now, some will look at this and say, well, it's coming off the Olivet Discourse, so really this has to do with the nations in general and how they treated the Jews uh, in the tribulation saints, or they treated the Jews during the, uh, um, the tribulation. Uh, or this could be Christ judging the nations as a whole and or their leadership. So suffice it to say, when we say, why is there suffering? Why is there poverty? Uh, why do we see some countries where the kids are, uh, it's the hard visions and pictures to look at. Suffice it to say that God will judge that leadership. Something about a lot of these countries where the, uh, the rulers live luxuriously and lavishly and the, there are people that are literally dying on the street. Poverty is different in Africa and Asia and uh, other countries different than it is in the United States. Much different, much harsher. Middle America, missions trips, it's pretty rough. So I believe that um, everyone is going to be dealt with. Now, we have to understand that God's word is not abstruse. It's not hard to understand. Um, so we can elicit a general understanding or maxim out of this, and let's go to that. What Christ is teaching us is that he is representative through the downtrodden of the world. That he is representative representative through the sufferings of the less fortunate. Now, 
We can look at this nationally, but we can also definitely take a personal application as believers. So what can we learn from it? There was a, a I, I've seen this done, true, true accounts in various forms, but I'm going to just pick one of them. Um, a professor who, in a Christian Bible college, and he said, you know, this is the, the time of the exam, and if you're late, by one minute, you get docked a letter grade. So what he did was, while well, he set up the classroom and the chairs and had a proctor or somebody in there, and he makes himself use a wig and, and different tattered clothes, and he makes himself look like somebody poor or a beggar, and whether he's lying on the ground, or, and again, I've, it's been done a few times, he purposely put himself in the path to the classroom, and some of those students literally would step over him because they didn't want to, they didn't want to get docked a letter grade. And it was a really good, especially when he came into the classroom and took off the wig and the clothes and they saw it was the professor. Oh, no. But it was a lesson that he taught them. Is a letter grade really that important? Or somebody who really needs help, would you help them? Now, I've seen videos. I saw a video in, uh, of in the city. A man literally gets stabbed to death and there, there's a tussle in, on the street and the, the attacker stabs him, the guy falls down. And people in the city are parting, walking around him, just, you know, like they don't see what's going on. That's terrible, isn't it? That's where the parable of the Good Samaritan comes in. The guy's uh, beat up and he's robbed and he's left half dead and the religious leaders ignore him. Now, this is bad when it happens in the world, but it's worse when Christians do it. So as we look at this, we can ask ourselves a few questions. How do we rate Number one, hunger, thirst, nakedness. Are we generous with our financial resources? Are we? The second point is, you were a stranger and took me in. Is our home and our personal space off limits? For those of us who have ever taken someone in, even for a short time, it stretches you. Your privacy, your habits have to change. It can be very difficult. But you know what? It also can be a blessing and help to give somebody a start in life. Three, I was sick and in prison, and you visited me, time constraints. Now, me personally, because you know, I, my life is, is done in blocks of time because I have so many things to do, um, I would rather write a check than to take time out of my busy schedule. But when I, whenever there's a funeral, it really stretches you, because who can predict when someone's going to pass away? But you know what? God blesses. He blesses. He makes things work out. So it's really a matter of us trusting him. And what we see here, too, is we all look at the big bad sins of murder and adultery and thievery. But what we see here are sins of omission, things that we should be doing, but we're not. There's an omission instead of a commission. We're always focusing on the commissions, but we don't focus so much on the omissions because those can strike a little bit more towards home. Well, I didn't kill anybody. Well, I didn't steal. Yeah, but what haven't you done? What has the Lord put in your path that you've completely ignored because you didn't feel like it or you, you worshipped your time and your resources too much? So we look at this and we can see for those that have allowed themselves to be stretched, God gave more and he blessed them. For those that have given to the nobodies of the world, as we read in this, Jesus says, I was representative through those people. He said, Jesus says, you actually helped me. Very interesting in Hebrews 13 too, and, and, some, and I know I've, I've dealt with this as well. Um, it says that, you know, always 
entertain or, or minister to strangers because don't you know that uh, some, you might be entertaining angels. As a, or I have a really funny story. I was in Jamesburg and I helped this guy out. And uh, it was really funny. So he, like, we helped him out and then uh, kind of went home and we looked for him and he disappeared. No one saw of him, no one heard of him. So then a few weeks go by and I see the guy and I was so excited, and I called my wife, and she said, do you think he was an angel? I said, he used a lot of profanity. I don't really think so. <laughs> so you can scratch that one off. But for those <laughs> that quietly cast the downtrodden aside, the Lord says, I saw that. I was paying attention. I ministered to that person, but you didn't. So it's something to look at. Now, I'm just going to say this before we close, especially to the ladies, and this is the law enforcement side of me. Um, ladies, there's some things, and even guys, don't put yourself in very dangerous positions. I don't, would never advocate, and I would never want anyone, and, and I don't think the Bible is as well, especially ladies at night, uh, you know, going to pick up a, maybe a hitchhiker, even during the day, a male hitchhiker, even a female, it could be very dangerous. So, you know, if the Lord isn't really speaking to you, just be careful because, you know, I wouldn't want that to happen to you. So remember, when I'm off duty, I carry a gun, so it, it kind of works out. Uh, so let me continue on here. Uh, some may be deceived about where they stand with the Lord, and some may be grouped with the five foolish virgins. Right? Now, don't despair if that's you. Change today. Make a commitment. Trust in him. Turn to him. Repent. Some may be surprised to find that they're spiritually lazy and have a rude awakening after they read this. Again, don't despair. Change. This is awesome. Every problem known to man, God has a solution. Right? Communion, you know, you, you, disregarding the Lord's body. Paul says, examine yourself. Take a moment. Make things right. And then partake of the body and, and you know, the cup and the bread. So God always has a solution for where we go wrong. When it's, we're never, on this life, as long as we have breath, he always allows us a second chance. Just remember that. Some of us, if we die today, we might find ourselves with the goats instead of the sheep. Again, don't despair. Change, repent, turn to the Lord. For those that think that this is work, works-based, again, we've missed the whole parable. This is heart-based. It goes back to being versus doing. When we do from the outside, it causes us to break down and get stressed because the Lord isn't in it. When we be, when it permeates our being, the Lord gives us the strength and the power for us to do on the outside. It has to work inside out, not outside in. It only works the first way. It's about sacrifice, obedience, faithfulness, love, watchfulness, and that can only come through a relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you give us our word even when it's...